This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. For more, visit lbj.utexas.edu. Welcome to Policy on Purpose. My name is Angela Evans, and I'm the Dean of the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. My guest today is a very special person to me. Her name is Abigail Aiken. She is an assistant professor of public affairs here at the LBJ School and has dedicated her career to researching factors that affect sexual and reproductive health, including one of the most highly charged issues in society, access to abortion. Abigail comes at this issue from a rich background in biomedical sciences, public policy, democracy, demography, excuse me, and public health, and democracy too, in terms of equal access to this. In addition to her PhD in public policy, Abigail holds an MD from the University of Cambridge and a Master's of Public Health from Harvard. So you can see this rich background has just come to fruition at a time where the LBJ School can make a difference in the world, working on a very complex, controversial problem where Abigail can bring some really great facts and her expertise and background, so information can be used in making really difficult decisions. So her research is not only impactful in terms of Texas, it's been impactful around the world. Last year, she testified before the Irish Parliamentary Committee responsible for deciding the scope of the 2018 referendum to legalize abortion in Ireland. At a time when women's issues are so in the forefront of our national conversation, I want to bring Abigail in to talk about her research and how she uses it to inform policy. Welcome, Abigail. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Abigail, tell everybody uh, what inspired you to jump from clinical, your clinical perspective in health, to the policy focus. Well, I think that clinical medicine brought two things to life for me. One was how often we make decisions without really any good evidence at all. And that could be at a legislative policy level, or it could be at the clinical level that I was at, looking at some of the guidelines that we had and asking the question of, wait, what's the evidence behind this? And sometimes we find ourselves in the clinical setting really working in the dark. And I think that's not that different somehow to how um, people often work in the legislative environment, too. So that was something I cared about um, throughout my entire time at clinical school. The second thing I think that you get from clinical medicine is the real experience that people go through. So when you're interacting with patients one-on-one, -on -one, when you see them come through clinics, when you're responsible for their care, you also understand the human piece of uh, the stories and the things people go through. And uh, when you think about policy, that's always something I think is really important to have in mind. I think that's really important. You're talking about the clinical perspective, not only the, knowing the medicine and the discipline of that, but also looking at from the client perspective, from the patient perspective. So talk to us a little about, you've been moving through these policy communities, even though you're young and, and new in your career, relatively new in your career. You've worked at the very high levels. You're talking about the Irish Parliament. You're talking about serving on central health here in uh in Texas, what have you seen as some of the obstacles to the policymakers in terms of their ability to understand and go know who to go to to get this kind of information that's based on fact and data and research? 
That's very interesting, and it's something that I actually have thought quite a bit about, um, because sometimes when you see people operating in the legislative space, you wonder if they have a sense for the fact that you could base this evidence, this policy on evidence. You you could actually go and ask an expert, and you could uh, see what the evidence base looks like. And I think sometimes when you're dealing with issues, particularly these very sensitive issues like abortion, people are not necessarily thinking of them as having an evidence base. They're not thinking about that as an aspect of medical care. They're not thinking about that as really an, uh, a service that you might provide to someone. They're thinking of it as a very uh, moral or ethical issue only. And not to say it doesn't have that component to it, but by taking a very one-dimensional view to it, the idea that there could be some evidence you might ask for or look for maybe doesn't occur to them. And one of the interesting experiences about talking with the Irish Parliament was that moment of recognition for some of the people in the room that, wait, there actually is an evidence base that we can explore here. And one of the really cool things about that experience was people's willingness to do that. Yeah, I think that that is just an example of how our work uh, in public policy schools can be used by people just to make a determination. You're making an informed decision, which is a lot of us use that phrase, but we don't always go behind what that phrase means. The other thing I want you to talk to us a little about, you are very comfortable with uh, and engaged with a lot of different disciplines. So when you're in the field of public policy, it's really important for us to go out and seek the input and advice and counsel of other, uh, other disciplines. You've worked with statisticians clinicians, uh, economists, sociologists, and talk to us a little bit about, if you can, give us a magic recipe of how you work with a lot of disciplines, bringing their focus, uh, their methodology, and together so you can have a cogent kind of approach to a policy. Um, so we're not confusing people with complexity. Yes. I think to me, it's a very natural thing in policy to want to do that, to bring these different lenses to a problem. Because when you think about any issue of public policy, it's really hard to pin it down into one particular area. Very, very rarely is some policy issue just an issue of economics or just an issue of culture or just an issue of medicine, right? And so to me, it's very natural to go looking for all those different pieces of the puzzle. And I enjoy putting them together to kind of bring um, a holistic view to a policy issue. I think you get a better solution that way when you uh, search outside of your own particularly narrow track. I also think that it's very important to know what you don't know. And when you're thinking about an issue and you're thinking about it from someone else's perspective, you want to ask yourself, I, you know, am I analyzing these data in the very best way possible? Or am I leaving out a certain piece of the puzzle here that could really make this better? And so for me, because I think part of the reason I'm sensitive to this is that I have been through many different disciplines on my own kind of meandering track to get to where I am now. So I think it's often I have an awareness in my mind of I want to consult with that person. I want to bring them on board. I want to find a solution that works for the most uh, people possible. And you do that by making these uh, cross-disciplinary collaborations. Plus, they're also really fun. You know, you get to meet a lot of interesting and very smart people by doing this. And they don't even often know much about the policy world, but they love the idea that their research can be applied uh, to the problems of society and trying to make life better for people. And the, I, your answer is wonderful because what it does, it has two sides to it. One side is if you are going to be informing policy at a very high-stake level that is going to affect a lot of people, wouldn't you want the best information? And the best information doesn't always reside in one discipline. So bringing the other disciplines, that's important. And the other is the different methodologies and the different ways of thinking about it. So the problem can be attacked from a lot of different angles, and I think that's really important. Uh, but some people are just not comfortable doing that. So 
Can you say, can you give any kind of helpful hints for people who are a little nervous about that? Because uh, I think what you've had is you've had success in people wanting to work with you. So part of that is your openness and part of it is your ability to collaborate. Are there other tools or other helpful hints that you can give to people who are a little nervous about taking on other disciplines in terms of their research? You know, I think it's important to sort of dip the toe in. Go over and see what people are doing in other departments. You know, attend some talks. I know it's always hard to find the time to do this. But also when you go down to the legislature or when you go to wherever it is that policy gets made and you see who else is there, part of that helps you to understand who's not there, right? And maybe you can go and help bring them into the fold. And then sometimes you'll meet other people who are just dying to get a, you know, toe in the water, but they don't know how to go about it themselves. And you can help them to do that. So I think that a lot of it is about sort of being brave and thinking that you can get a better solution if you go do this. Um, so just being aware of what's out there. And you'd be surprised how many people, when you talk about the policy relevance, they go, oh, I wish we had that in my field. Mm -hmm. And you can say, you do. You just right, got to, exactly. you know, and I can help you do that because mm -hmm. I'm connected to that world. So I think it's uh, part, partly uh, the awareness and then also the willingness to just to go forth and talk to people. You are what you are because of your past. And the fact that you had that clinical experience and you actually could see patients and folks who were supposed to be helping either through our policy, through our application of medicine, really adds a dimension that we're trying to do with our students, which is tell the students to go out and actually meet and talk to the people that they think they're helping. And I think that's an important part of what's grounded you and made you, as you say, courageous or a little fearless in going uh, outward because you see the, the end, you see the patient. Can you embellish on that a little bit about what it meant to you to have that clinical background before you went into the policy perspectives and the arena in your work? Yeah, I can. And I think for me, it started almost even before that. You know, I grew up in Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. and Northern Ireland is an interesting place. It's a lovely place. It's very close to my heart. But it's one of the few places in Europe where we still have uh, laws that govern sex and reproductive health dating to Victorian times. You know, 1861 is where our abortion law in Northern Ireland dates to. So I grew up with a sense of the human experience of what it's like to be an individual who might be marginalized, who might have a difficult time, you know, being a female in an environment where being a female is a tough thing to be. Mm -hmm. So that put me into clinical medicine in the first place. I wanted to be able to connect with people who needed healthcare and try to understand uh, from their own life experience what it's like to go through that. Even if you don't go through it yourself, mm -hmm. you can still have empathy and you can have understanding of the experiences of others. And when you get into clinical medicine, that's the place where you really see that because you see people come through the system. You also see not just what happens to them once they're there, but if you take the time, you also see how they got there. What mm -hmm. were the barriers to getting here today? What have you gone through? Um, and you know, often you'll find that with conversations in the clinical sphere, a lot of what people talk about is that. They talk about the experience of the illness and not just the solution to the illness or, or the condition or whatever they're dealing with. Um, and I found that inspiring. That made me think about how could we have kept you out of hospital in the first place exactly. and how could we have made these services more accessible for you? So that was something that I really drew from my clinical experience. I think it's a wonderful thing to be a clinician and to treat people and help them and, and, and treat disease. But for me, the direction it made me move in was let's see how we can look at this uh, from a sort of a bigger picture and try to make these services better and more accessible and more responsive to the needs of the person. Thank you. Great answer. We know that you're doing some really important work in Ireland to support 
you know, the Irish Parliament and the people moving forward with legalization of abortion. But what should Americans know about the state of reproductive health here? When we think about women and women's health, you know, a major part of women's physical health is the fact that they're childbearing. So we have the pregnancy, the pre-pregnancy, the pregnancy, and then, you know, we have our record is not very good in terms of postpartum, you know, um, health. So tell me a little bit about what you see the dimensions of the policy, uh, the policy debates that are coming along uh, that might be a little bit different than they were in the past. Yeah, there are several big ones. And, you know, I'll, t- I'll use Texas as, as an example because this is something we haven't talked about much yet, which is the maternal mortality issue. Yes. And so we've heard a lot, we've seen a lot about maternal mortality rates rising in Texas um, and really now being, they were already unacceptably high, but now really high. And there's a lot to investigate on that issue. Coming at it from a scientist's perspective, the first thing you want to know is let's look at the consistency of those data over time. We want to know, are we seeing a real increase or are we seeing a difference in, say, how records were collected Mm -hmm. or how deaths were reported or what we now count as a death in Texas? So that's the first question that a scientist is going to ask, right? Then after having done that analysis, if we still find that these increases are real, then we're worried and we want to figure out what are all the moving pieces that uh, might have contributed to that? That's incredibly complex. You know, when we think about all the different contributors, you've got the fact that people don't have good access to care. You know, if you qualify for Medicaid, you have that during your pregnancy, you have it for six weeks afterwards, then it goes away, and any other problem you have, you're still postpartum, by the way, um, is then going to be your own problem. You don't have the insurance to cover anymore. That's something we think about a lot um, in my role in central health as well, is how do we then step in to try to cover that gap? Um, Then you've got to think about issues like mental health. So not all the things people are experiencing post-pregnancy that might contribute to maternal mortality are physical things. Some of those will also be uh, postpartum depression, um, which can be really very serious, uh, say postpartum substance use. And those things we don't really have sometimes the capacity to, first of all, identify all of those people, and second of all, understand what to do with them to help them. We really need a robust service that can do that. So I think that um, that's going to be one of the big issues that is not going away in Texas Mm -hmm. anytime soon. It's got to be addressed. We also know that it particularly affects different communities. We know that um, even if maternal deaths have started to be reported differently, they were higher and are still higher among women of color and African-American women in particular. And that is an issue of equity and something that we really have to think hard about. Um, So I would say that's something coming up for the next legislature, kind of thinking ahead Mm -hmm. another year. Um, We also have to think about the fact that, you know, I've been working in Ireland, we've talked about that, and how you're looking there at a situation where abortion is not available. It's not a right. You're looking in the United States where you've got a completely different environment. It's legal here, and yet many, many people, especially in our state here, struggle to access it for financial reasons, for the reasons of having to travel a long way, for... um, the reasons of having to go through medically unnecessary obstacles before they can have an abortion. And so what happens to people in that environment is a question that I'm actively researching right now. Um, What happens to someone who can't get to an abortion clinic in Texas or in Ohio or in Alabama or any of the states in America where uh, clinic access has gotten harder and harder? That's something that we need to start grappling with. It's a very difficult thing to research. It's a difficult thing for us all to come to terms with. But it's going to, uh, I think, become a really important policy issue moving forward. I think you've hit uh, another important message here about the role of public policy uh, uh, in terms of its 
not only as a driver of debate and uh, legislative consideration and deliberation, but the fact that it's grounded, it has to be grounded in fact and has to be grounded in research. And like you said earlier in an answer, a good thing to tell people is what we know and what we don't know. And if we don't know it, what are we going to do about collecting it so that we don't continue not to know this? So this is a very important part of our work here at the LBJ School, both in terms of the research, but also instilling in our students the need to understand this important uh, aspect of their careers when they leave they leave us. Um, so. You know, you've done so much uh, in terms of your research. Um, you're you're, you're well-published. You're a scholar. You've done a lot of work in terms of being on boards and involved in the community. So tell me a little bit about some of the specific impacts you've been able to make in the area of reproductive health. And we know, I don't know if we've actually told people about what uh, you've done with the Irish Parliament, but we can start there and then you can talk about other issues. But I'd like people to really see the impact of research uh, from your perspective. Certainly. I think that one of the, um, I don't know if it will always be the most um, surprising and yet satisfying part of my career that may now have already happened. I may not be able to ever <laughs> top this. But having gone to the Irish Parliament and to give the background there, you know, the situation in Ireland uh, with abortion is that it is governed by what's called the Eighth Amendment. And that is a constitutional amendment uh, that gives fetuses equal rights to pregnant people. And that means that when someone is pregnant and um, they suffer a threat to their health that may also be a threat to their life, but you've got a fetus that has a beating heart, there's nothing a doctor can do. You really are in a situation where your hands are tied and uh, because of the Constitution. Um, there was a, a terrible incident where um, Savita Halapanovar, she was a, a 35-year-old woman who died in Ireland uh, because doctors felt they couldn't intervene. And so the law has changed a little since then. In 1995, they introduced a clause saying, okay, you know, if death is imminent, you may do something uh, to help the woman. But that's as far as the law has gone. Now, that Constitutional Amendment was enacted in 83. That's the year that I was born. So if you think mm -hmm. about that, uh, there's a generation of women in Ireland who have never had a say over their own uh, reproductive rights. And there was a movement basically in Ireland to change this. So this 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 uh, policy debate really grew out of um, a lot of on the ground sort of advocacy and speaking out. You know, when I was growing up in Ireland, no one could mention the word abortion. It's very much now something that people are in the streets demonstrating about. So there's been a really big uh, culture change shift. just in your lifetime. Yes, exactly. So it's been... Uh, kind of interesting to see that. So the reaction to this in Ireland is, okay, let's take this up as a policy issue. Let's decide, should we let the Irish people vote on whether they want to keep the Eighth Amendment or not? And if not, what would they like to replace it with? Mm -hmm. And the way that Ireland went about this, to me as a policy scholar, is fascinating. They decided, let's get 99 Irish citizens in a room Let's randomly select them. 99. 99. Mm -hmm. So they came from all over Ireland. They came into this with all kinds of different opinions and life experiences about all kinds of things, not just abortion. And they put them in a room for five weekends. And they had experts, you know, doctors, um, researchers come to testify to them and tell them a bit about abortion in Ireland and about abortion in the world and abortion in general. And at the end of this process, those 99 people made a recommendation to what's called the Oireachtas Committee, and that's the Irish Parliamentary Committee um, that was responsible for deciding what to do about the Eighth Amendment. Mm -hmm. And the parliament uh, said, okay, the uh, Citizens' Assembly, these 99 people, have recommended repeal, so go ahead and allow the referendum, and replace it with abortion on request up to 12 weeks. 
Mm-hmm. We now, as the Oireachtas Committee, have got to decide what to do with that recommendation. Mm-hmm. So they also called in experts. They called in doctors and researchers. And luckily, we were very fortunate, our research team, to be asked to come and testify. And we were asked because what we've been doing is looking at the impacts of the law. You've got a law that basically says no abortion in Ireland. But is that the reality? Are people in Ireland finding ways to have abortion um, even though it's not allowed? And the answer from our research is absolutely. They do two things. They either travel abroad to England Mm -hmm. usually, or they use what's called online telemedicine. And that's a service where they can purchase the medications they need to do a medication abortion at home up to 12 weeks using an online service called Women on Web. And we partnered with Women on Web. They're a nonprofit organization. Uh, They allowed us to use anonymized data from their uh, clients. And we were able to actually track what was happening uh, with abortion over time in Ireland. We found that the number of people traveling declined and the number of people turning to the online service increased to the point where you have you have more than 2,000 women a year uh, doing their own abortions at home in Ireland, despite a law that says there's no abortion in Ireland. Mm-hmm. So we came to the Oireachtas Committee. We presented these findings. We did not know what the reaction was going to be. Yes. But the reason I, I say this and the reason I, I wanted to talk about it is because the reaction in the room. Now, a lot of these uh, politicians, they have very strong opinions. Some of them were already very supportive of abortion. Some of them were very, very non-supportive of abortion. They believed it was very wrong. But everybody in the room was interested in the fact that it's happening. And they wanted to confront the fact that, okay, if the law is not having its intended impact, what does that really mean? And what are we going to do about the fact that people are are doing this? They may be doing it safely. In the service, we've we've looked at the numbers. It's pretty effective. It's pretty safe. But they can't get the follow-up care that they need all the time. They don't feel safe going to a doctor. They don't feel they've got anyone to talk to about the decision. And they feel uh, like the whole thing has got to be completely covert because it's technically against the law. So, the committee were interested in asking the question of what is someone's experience in Ireland when they go through this? And do we really think we can support a law that, that allows this to happen? Or should we change? Should we let the Irish people decide what to do? Um, and so after having heard a lot of different testimony, they decided to go ahead with the referendum and it will be happening in May of this year. So we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see what happens we'll see. Um, with that decision, which will be a major decision uh, for the Irish people, for sure. Yeah. We talk about, you know, President Johnson and, you know, his legacy of getting in the middle of the most complex public policy problems and working across the aisles um, and talking to people and, and compromising and finding areas where people agree. But this year, you're confronting a policy and you're working in a policy that's has a lot of emotion around it. It's an emotionally charged issue. How do you deal uh, with that when you're at work? And how do you keep your eye on the ball uh, and not be just, you know, distracted as a researcher from that and keep keep steady on the course of trying to find information that would that's a foundational um, source for people on both sides of these issues? It's interesting. I think um, one thing that helps me is my training as a scientist. You know, I started life as a medical scientist. I went to medical school then. And for me, you know, I recognize that I'm not a neutral being. You know, I obviously have opinions about the stuff that I'm researching. But that's very different. I know that the research questions I pick, I pick them because they're interesting to me. But I never assume that I know what the data are going to tell me. So I remain neutral when it comes to the analysis of the data and the interpretation of it, even though I know that in my own life, I'm not neutral on the subject. I don't feel like I have to be. I think a lot of times people come into policy, they work on an issue because they really care about it. But that doesn't mean that you know what you're going to find. You always want to keep your mind open and your methods scientific. 
On the question of talking to people, it's very interesting. You know, I know people, I'm close to people, I love people who um, don't agree with me. They are very, very, very opposed to abortion. They think it's a morally very problematic thing. And I think that when you are close to someone or know someone that doesn't agree with you, it's it's a very different ball game than thinking of, oh, the others that are out there that don't agree with me. Yes. It's very easy to demonize people yes. who don't agree with you when you don't know any of them. And when you do, you are forced to reckon with the fact, here's a person that I love and respect. They don't agree with me on something that you know I might feel strongly about. Mm -hmm. And I think that being respectful and tolerant of those opinions is incredibly important. You are more likely to get somewhere with someone who doesn't agree with you if you can try to understand where they're coming from rather than simply disagree. You can disagree, but disagree without respect and without tolerance for their viewpoints. So I find that it's one way of, you know, reaching compromise sometimes in a policy arena. But also, even if you don't get to a place of compromise, uh, you learn something. Mm -hmm. You learn something about how other people work. And I think it's always worth doing that. I think that's the key. And that's what we're talking about right now in terms of discourse, the ability to talk and understand. You said not demonize, but it becomes, uh, I think it becomes a challenge because people want yes, no, black, white. And often in these kinds of situations, number one, they're complex. And number two, it's almost like you have to say, I accept this, but I don't accept this. It comes almost to a gut after you have a lot of information. But the other important point you made is to seek out, because these are real people. You know, it's very easy to say, oh, them. Uh, but oh, them came to a conclusion about an issue on either side of the issue that you're on. So what drove them to that conclusion? What are they thinking about? What were their life experiences? So while you might come out, on the side that you thought you were, you're going to be much more informed about the other. So one of the things at the LBJ school that we try to do too is ensure that students have the ability to understand the bottom foundational analytic pinnings of issues. Because once you have that set, then you can advocate. But if you can't get that an analytic approach, that analytic was the word as a keystone of any kind of decision, then it's very hard to advocate because then you become the risk of becoming an echo chamber. And I think you've maneuvered through that, you know, very well because this is, again, a very highly charged um, policy. So, yes. Abigail, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. And I hope everyone can really see how articulate and thoughtful um, you are. And we're so proud that you're here at the LBJ School. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. To learn more, visit lbj.utexas.edu and follow us on Twitter or Facebook at the LBJ School. Thank you for listening.